We got one more to do, and I'm going to bring out my old pal Jim Cregan, Jimmy Cregan. Welcome, Jimmy. Come on. Come on. The pubs are still open. Let's get this done. series finale on Boxing Day, I'm joined by a man that holds over 40 platinum and gold-selling records. It's Jim Cregan. We're in LA and we've got a night off and the management had managed to squeeze us into a club called The Roxy on Sunset Strip. And uh, Rod and Britt Eklund came down to see us, you know, they, I saw the, I actually saw them walk, it's a small club, maybe 200 people. So um, there's, uh, I see Rod and Britt come in, I'm not really looking at Rod. <laughs> <laughs> Britt Eklund was in her day one of the most beautiful women in the world. We get on great, we're laughing and joking and taking the mick and you know, I'm, I'm very happily ensconced in Cockney Rebel, we're doing really well, I'm getting paid very well. I'm enjoying the, the guys in the band, so I didn't really care that much about whether I played with Rod Stewart or not. Mm. Um, until it was mentioned that there would be some songwriting. And then I came up with the ending. Oh, it's all improvised, and they cut the two bits together. And we had a solo, and nobody thought anything much of it. We said, "Okay, well that's it. I'm down tools, you know, off to bed." And when we played it to the the, the guy um, Bob Mercer, who was the, the head of A and R at EMI Records, he said, "I think you've got a number one here, lads." And we went, "Really? Okay. Well, that's great." And it turned out to be right. We played with Alan. Played with Alan. Yeah, wow. and, and Hubert Samlin. I didn't know how to address it. That was what, what worried me most, is, is that we were going to meet him at the gig. We'd be in a little, little tiny rehearsal for half an hour. I was thinking, do I say, oh, hello, nice to meet you, Howling? Or, um, okay, hello, Mr. Wolf. I was thinking, that sounds like bloody Red Riding Hood. Uh, so, so, thank God, he very kindly stretched out his hand and said, hi, my name's Chester. Because that's his real name, Chester Thompson. And I went, oh, thank God for that. He must get, he must be aware of the fact that nobody knows how to address him. I love you, honey! So I'm here with, uh, with Jim Cregan. Thank you very much for joining me, Jim. <laughs> You're most welcome, Ryan. Nice <laughs> to see you. <laughs> it's very nice to see you too. Um, so uh, a thing that I always like to do is I like to kind of go right back to the beginning. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what first got you into music? Uh, my uncle gave me a ukulele with one string on it that he had lying around his house. And for some reason, I was fascinated with the idea of picking out a melody, running up and down that one string. It was really strange. Um, and, and eventually my parents bought me the other strings. And so I learned <laughs> how to play the ukulele. <laughs> And then uh, one Christmas, I was supposed to get an Elvis Presley um, plastic guitar, which had a box over it. You pressed a button and it made a chord, right? Mm. And, and it had about six buttons on it, so you could, you know, could, so I could have written a load of Bob Dylan songs with it. <laughs> but it didn't show up in time. Um, and so they rushed out at the last minute and bought me an acoustic guitar. And I was 13, and I picked that up, and I haven't put one down since. 
Mm. And that was, um, well, I'm 76, so that was a little while back. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't know I've been playing that long when you hear me play, but hey, I am. <laughs> I'm a s- slow learner. <laughs> um, did you have like a, a first band that you kind of really connected with? I think when people are growing up, they always have that one band, don't they? Where it's like it's kind of like their band. Yeah, yeah. It was the Shadows? Mm. The Shadows, an English instrumental band. Uh, f- uh, Cliff Richards' uh, original backing band, and they went on to make their own records. And because they were instrumentals, all their hits were instrumentals, all the guitar players wanted to learn how to be Hank Marvin. I mean, you talk to to Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck or any of those guys, uh, in amongst all the other guys they love, Hank Marvin was definitely an influence. He was the first guy playing a Fender Strat, a, a pink flamingo pink fender strap and everybody in the world that played guitar wanted one mm. they wanted my local music shop nobody could afford it it stayed there for a long time it was 260 pounds or something and you could nearly buy a house for that <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish i could buy a house for that now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah hey. maybe um, just need to gun, you do it at gunpoint get a weapon <laughs> I mean, I think particularly with with everybody from your generation, that that all of these bands, it all goes back to the shadows. I mean, every every time I speak with, I mean, I spoke with Susie Quattro and uh, oh, yeah. another chap called Tommy Emmanuel. Um, yeah, Tommy Emmanuel, oh, monster, monster guitar player. Exactly, and he he was like, oh, the shadows. It's it's the shadows. It goes okay, back to them. all right, and. Um, yeah, it's, it's it just shows what an impact. I mean, for an instrumental band, I mean, how many instrumental bands do we see now that are getting number none. one singles? You know, none, none that I can think of. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame, really, because uh, some of the songs, the lyrics, some of the well, this is from every generation, but some of the lyrics of songs are so bad they ought to be instrumentals. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, things you know really started to kind of move forward for you in your in your second band um i love the title of this band uh, the dissatisfied blues band <laughs> where i believe you opened for for howling wolf and what was that experience like for you at the time i mean you must oh, fantastic you? Oh, yeah brilliant we didn't open for howling wolf we played with howling wolf played with howling wolf yeah wow. and, and hubert samlin uh, it was at the Klux Cleek uh, R&B club above the Railway Hotel in West Hampstead. And uh, the reason this fell into our laps was Giorgio Gomelski, who managed the Yardbirds and at some point for 10 minutes managed the Rolling Stones. Um, he, he had some connection to us. I can't remember why. Uh, but we used to play at the Marquee, uh, which was a, a, a very prestigious gig in those days. And um, he would bring these uh, these blues artists over. Uh, a Sonny Boy Williamson, for example, lived in his apartment for a while. Uh, he, he and he said, uh, he said, you guys, uh, you want to back up Howling Wolf? And we went, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> so, so we were the, the, the strange part of that story for me. The thing, the two things that were, were made me nervous. One is, even though I knew his, some of his repertoire because I had all his records. And Smokestack Lightning was a huge uh, crowd pleaser to play at gigs. Um, I didn't know how to address it. That was what what worried me most, is is that we were going to meet him at the gig. We'd be in a little little tiny rehearsal for half an hour, 
and um, then we, you know, we just jam the rest of it. Um, but I didn't know what to, I was thinking. Do I say, oh, hello, nice to meet you, Howling? Or, um, okay, hello, Mr. Wolf. I was thinking it sounds like bloody Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, so, so thank God he very kindly stretched out his hand and said, Hi, my name's Chester. Because that's his real name, Chester Thompson. And I went, oh, thank God for that. He must be, he must be aware of the fact that nobody knows how to address him. And then he said later on, <clears throat> as we were in the back, in the dressing room, it was in the kitchen of the hotel. And the, uh, he said, um, he said, I know you boys know how to play the blues. <laughs> I went, God, I was 18. I thought, <laughs> it was so nice of him to say that, even though we all know he's lying. It's, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like watching Fox News. You know it's lying, but nobody's admitting it. <laughs> Um, and he, he brought his own guitar player, Hubert Sumlin, who was, uh, as the joke goes, he was so thin he only had one stripe in his pyjamas. Um, and he played uh, a twinkly blue Hagstrom guitar, and I just was mesmerised by him. He was a lovely guitar player. And so, I, so at the age of, of 18 or 20, maybe, I don't know how old I was, I'm on stage with one of the great blues giants of his era, and and I was just blown away by the, the fun of it, and the the, the 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 it was great. It was absolutely great. I, I we got away with it, you know. Nobody really messed up. The band weren't particularly good, but they weren't particularly bad either. So I was we got away with it. I'm delighted. What a bit of luck. <laughs> I mean, it must be a surreal experience. Like, yeah, that was <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, I, I, looking across and you, you know, you just see this absolute icon. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, yeah, because in those days, those blues guys, Muddy Waters, B.B. Um, mm. King, and uh, uh, all the, all the great blues guys who were brought over here essentially by Muddy, by, by, um, Giorgio Gomelsky for the Blues Folk Festival. I saw these guys, Sonny Terry, Brandon McGee, Sister Rosetta Tharp, all these guys playing at the Festival Hall, which is a big venue. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys were coming out of little Chicago clubs that would have, you know, 60 people in them, and they're playing to, you know, two and a half, three thousand absolutely rabid British blues fans. I mean, I, was, I, I spoke to an American guy yesterday on a, a podcast, and he said, you know, how successfully the British had absorbed the blues and then sold it back to the Americans in the form of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Hey, why not? Steal a good idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it is something. There's always been something about the blues. Like, I think... Yeah, yeah it's it's, it, it's it's like a yeah, it's this kind of feeling and emotion with it. I think that you know, throughout the years, people always go back to it. I think you know, always circles back around. It doesn't fall out of fashion, really, does it? No, it's it. The blues really is one of the primary musical art forms. Mm. You know, along with folk music and just sort of uh, Afro. Uh, rhythms, which of course the drum is the earliest musical instrument ever, apart from the voice. Um, and yeah, the the blues is a, it's the basis upon which rock and roll is, is built, and from rock and roll comes pop. 
You know? mm. So, uh, well, sorry, I, I, I should have included uh, classical music in there as one of the early ones, but classical music grew out of folk music as well. Mm. You know, those some of those early um, Baroque um, styles of music contain uh, old folk tunes. And folk music is uh, uh, Irish and, and Irish and Scottish folk music is, is the basis of a lot of music too. I'm going to pretend I, I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about. It's just a lot of bollocks. Don't take me notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's, I, I, I agree. I mean, for me, you can trace a lot. Of, I mean, as you said there, we like Led Zeppelin. You can trace it back to the blues. Oh, yeah, somewhat. You can yeah. trace it back for a lawsuit if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, later that year, uh, the band morphed into the Blossom Tones. Um, where you guys didn't you share the same manager as the Yardbirds? Yeah, we did. Blossom Toes was uh, I joined. It's that's not quite uh, historically. That's not quite correct. Blossom Toes was a completely different outfit, which were, okay. they were called the Ingos, and and um, they had a quite a following in Paris. They had residencies in Paris for some reason, and um, they were they were quite a nice. Well, not quite a nice. It was a nice band, um, but the guitar player. For some reason, Giorgio Gomelski was managing them, didn't think he was right for the band, so he sort of squeezed him out and squeezed me in. And uh, I, I'm not sure that, that Brian Godding, the other guitar player in the band, ever forgave Giorgio for that, because <laughs> uh, it was his, one of his pals. But anyway, we went on to be the, the two main songwriters in the outfit, and I had a great time in that band. Um, mm. And we developed that uh, harmony guitar thing that's... Uh, that's um, that was a trademark for us, but we managed to, uh, to break the band up before it, it really uh, came to its fruition. And um, Wishbone Ash picked up the idea and ran with it and turned it into quite a successful thing. And then also um, uh, Thin Lizzy, Phil Linnett, he did it as well. You know, there's that lovely harmony guitar thing. Boys are back in town. It's um, which is great. So you know, he did very well. Did very well. But we kind of pioneered that without wanting to blow a trumpet. Um, but then we had a car crash. Um, two of the guys kind of got freaked out by it and um, and decided they would like to go off in a different direction, which was a shame. They broke the band up and, and threw me into a bit of a tailspin for six months uh, and I went off and lived in Positano in Italy and, uh, and uh, lived in Portugal for a while, you know, just playing in bands, kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. Mm. It's quite fun. But um, I came back to England and started a really strange band called Stud which was John Wilson and uh, Charlie McCracken from Taste, who, after Rory Gallagher left, wanted to go into progressive jazz. And uh, like a fool, I said yes, even though I didn't know the first thing about playing jazz. Still don't. Um, <laughs> and, but we had a great time. They were great fun, those guys. Really fun. But we, because of Taste was such a big, successful band in the day, and Rory Gallagher was a, 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 a really wonderful uh, the guitar player from that was considered by many which i was one of the greatest i was I, I could play the guitar all right but i i, I didn't have rory's ability to uh, to win over the audience quite the same way uh, so we started off having a full house and then we'd come back and it would be a half a house and then we'd come back and be a quarter of a house so it was the, the spiral of of, uh, of defeat 
um, came along, and eventually the thing fell apart on its own. Uh, we didn't have much success, but it was, it was fun while it lasted. It taught me that, um, that trying to play fast for the sake of trying to play, of being fast, was in, in and of itself an empty vessel. So I stopped right after that pretty well and, and concentrated on being more um, melodic and lyrical with my guitar playing, which, which turned out to be all right. And less is more that old ad adage. Yes, I mean, I, I remember when I was younger, there was a there was a phase in kind of the mid two thousands where everybody was trying to play really fast. It was like as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it was like it just and, became uh, yeah. hey, nothing. Know. Yeah, <laughs> guitar swingers. I mean, that's the that's the quick on the draw. But I mean, there are some wonderful guitar players who can play very quickly. I mean, mm. Jeff Beck comes to mind, and Eddie Van Halen, God rest his soul, an unbelievably beautiful guitar player. I, I thought he was fantastic. But, uh, you know, it, it's also, if you want to do that, you've got to, you've got to devote an awful lot of time to uh, practicing, to have that amount of technique. And I didn't feel that was what I wanted to spend my time doing. You know, I, I was more interested in sort of songwriting and, uh, I don't know, building up other skills, uh, you know, but hey, maybe maybe we would we could just call it laziness too. That would work. <laughs> I, I mean, you kind of was it was it around that period where you started to kind of diversify? You know, obviously you you've been like a producer and hmm. and you write songs. And what was that period where you were like, I'm going to try these different things? Mm, that started with Linda Lewis, who, mm. who was a, who, who, we were married at one point for about five years. Um, so I was the boyfriend at the time, I think, and she got a, a record deal with uh, Warner Brothers. And in those days, one of the things that was great about the record companies is they didn't pretend that they knew any better than you. Right? Now they think they know what they're doing, of course, which has always been a terrible <laughs> lie. Uh, so they, 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 they'd give you the money or they'd pay the bills and, you know, in the studio. We recorded it at um, uh, Apple Studios in Savile Row under the basement of the Beatles building. So, you know, you might, you, you could see George Harrison, you know, coming out of the studio while you were going in, that kind of thing. And um, we made this really beautiful kind of folky, I don't know, Richie Haven's band played on quite a lot of it. Richie Haven's was a big hit at the time. Mm. Um, we, we stole his band because he was on tour and we said, why don't you stay on a couple of weeks and make this record with us? Then we had some of Cat Stevens' band who were mates of ours. Um, I, mean, I don't it wasn't that record. We had Lowell George and Tara Power were on, it, on the next record we made. But Linda said, I want, to, uh, I want to make this record with Jim as the producer or as a co-producer. And I'd never produced a record in my life. But I knew enough about making records because that's one of the few advantages of being a player and a producer is you know exactly what it's like to be on the other side of the glass from the producer and having to listen to somebody give you a bunch of shit um, through the window and and thinking a you don't know what you're talking about and b your motivational skills are crap and you probably should just go away and let the band get on with it so I learned sometimes shut up and let the band get on with it. It was a good good way to make a record. 
So, um, so we we did we made a beautiful record. Uh, it wasn't a big hit, but it m- made a big dent in. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not the right word. It pushed uh, Linda forward as an artist, and, and lots of people uh, loved her, including Stevie Wonder, who when he came to England. Um, so it was being interviewed on the radio, and, he, and, she, and this woman, Marsha Hunt, asked him, asked, I said, uh, who would you most like to meet in, now you're here in England? And he said, Linda Lewis. And she was, whoa, okay, well, that was rather nice. And then so we, we went and met Stevie at Island Studios and hung out with him for a, a couple of hours. I think he was trying to run off with my girlfriend, but I mean, I forgive him for that because it's Stevie Wonder. <laughs> well, this is it. You can't really argue. <laughs> you know, it was the same thing happened when we met Muhammad Ali. He wanted to run off with the two. Wow. I, sh- I think I could have taken him out. I'm sure. <laughs> but only if he was walking away. And I, I, I don't know what I'd have said being confronted with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> he said to him, What are you doing with this white hole? <laughs> <laughs> This is my wife, actually. Thank you, Mohammed. <laughs> I'll get my coat. Yeah. <laughs> get my coat. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> moments, oh, wow. Um, moments of fun. <laughs> um, of course, you know, you also work with the likes of family um, mm-hmm. and uh, notably uh, Cockney Rebel. Um mm-hmm. And obviously the the iconic number one single, Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile. And can you remember kind of how that song in particular came to be, and in particular the the acoustic solo on there? Because it's it's so iconic now. Yeah, it has. Well, it did me a whole bunch of good, That's playing that solo. Um, But Steve was a... um, uh, 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 What did I say... He was a bit of a last-minute kind of guy, so he'd arrive in the studio with a sketch of a song and just throw it out there. And because Duncan Mackay and myself loved to arrange things and and were very happy if you gave us uh, gave us the work, we'd rather you let us do it than you told us what to do. Mm. I mean, I, I've, unfortunately, I'm one of those people that if you hire me to be on your session let me be whatever that Jim Cregan is that day rather than ask me to be you know um, Eddie Van Halen or ask me to be everybody else uh, I, I mean I can kind of sometimes uh, bluff that style but I'd rather you just let me be me because hopefully that's why you hired me mm. well Courtney Rebel were good at that and and all of the players were inventive uh, Stuart Elliott Ron Drums fantastic player never never just uh, well I shouldn't say never but rarely just did what any obvious drummer would do so we put the tune together the the, the engineer producer um, what's his name um, I can't think of his name for a minute he produced the Pink Floyd and he he said well, I think you should take your tempo up and by the time we'd finished messing around with it he also I think was responsible for the stops in it um uh, after we all finished mucking about it, it seemed like it was a pretty good track. And then at about 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, they said, why don't we put a guitar solo on? We had a, we, uh, we left space for a solo. We put a guitar solo on. What about acoustic, somebody said. I don't know for who, who it was. So uh, we were in Abbey Road. I went down the steps from the control room into Studio 2, got myself uh, a sound or, you know, uh, 
fiddled about on these. I, I, one of the things I don't do is I never play the solo that I'm supposed to do until the, the push go, because mm. I get a sound by playing something else. But I want the very first thing I do to be fully improvised, so I haven't got a clue what I'm going to play. I'm, I'm so hit and miss, but fortunately, somehow, mostly, I managed to get it right. So I played all the front of that that solo first time no rehearsal no nothing right up to the middle of it where i crashed and um and, I, and they said well, okay well, well that's great we've got the front but you've got to put an ending on it so i, I had two more goes of it i think and then i came up with the ending oh it's all improvised and they cut the two bits together and we had a solo and um and nobody thought anything much of it. So, okay, well, that's it. I'm down tools, you know, off to bed, about <laughs> half past one. Didn't take me very long. And when we played it to the the, the guy, um, Bob Mercer, who was the, the head of A&R at EMI Records, he said, I think you've got a number one here, lads. And we went, really? Okay, well, that's great. And it turned out to be right. It was huge hit all over the place, except, sadly, for America, which we tried to conquer, but never did. It was hits all over the other places. It's a good record. It still sounds nice today, I've got to say. It still sounds good. Do you I play it in my band. Mm. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that song's just everywhere. I mean, I can, I, you know, I've heard it in adverts. I've heard it, you know, like, you, it's just kind of been a thing that's always been there. Yeah. Um, and it just shows how much of a you know a hit that was. You know, yeah. if it's still around now, it's like yeah, it's been a hit. It's been a hit a couple of times, mm. uh, which is which is great. Mm. Um, yeah. Of course, after that, uh, you went on to join Rob Stewart, mm -hmm. um, going on and playing with him for nearly twenty years. Yeah. Um, how did that partnership kind of first come about? Uh, he's okay. So. Uh, Cockney Rebel are trying to break America and we're opening for the Kinks on a, quite a big tour, um, playing big theatres mainly, um, no arenas. We, we, funnily enough, the Kinks, who, are, who I, I love as a band and Ray as a writer, um, didn't really crack it as much as they should have done in America. So um, anyway, the, the theatres were playing are, are all right. And then we're in LA and we got a night off and the management had managed to squeeze us into a club called the Roxy on Sunset Strip. And uh, Rod and Britt Eklund came down to see us. You know, they, I saw that I actually saw them walk. It's a small club, maybe 200 people, but it's nice. It's got tables and, and waitress service and all that kind of stuff. It's really quite, it's quite a smart, smartish club anyway. So, um, there's, uh, I see Rod and Britt come in. I'm not really looking at Rod. <laughs> <laughs> Britt Eklund was, uh, in her day, one of the most beautiful women in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, he likes, he seems to like what I'm doing on stage and gets his tour manager to, to find me, call me up. And we arrange to meet in England when I'm back. And we have a, we, we have a drink in a, in a pub called The Wrestlers in Highgate. And we get on great. We're laughing and joking and taking the mick. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happily ensconced in Cockney Rebel. We're doing really well. I'm getting paid very well. I'm enjoying the, the guys in the band. So I didn't really care that much about whether I played with Rod Stewart or not. Mm. Um, until it was mentioned that there would be some songwriting. 
and that changed my point of view entirely. Uh, because money has never been my driving factor in my life, although, like everybody, I'm quite happy to get some money. The the the, the, the truth is, it's all about the people and the and the and the work. So um, anyway, nothing happens for a while, and fast forward three months or so, maybe maybe a bit less. I'm back in LA doing a session for Cat Stevens because he he's written a song for Linda Lewis, um, and he wants me to play on it. So. And we go to LA and we do the work. I'm playing with these amazing session musicians. Um, Ollie Brown on drums, uh, other guitar player. Uh, Willie Weeks on bass. Oh, God. I mean, these guys are the session, at the time, the session heads mm -hmm. of the world. And I'm, you know, there's this white bloke from Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> trying, try not to tremble. <laughs> anyway, we get the I get the job done, and uh, I've got a couple of days off while Linda does vocals and all the rest of it gets done. And uh, so I call Rod because he gave me his number, and he, I speak to him. And he says, um, "We haven't got another guitar player yet. So why don't you come down tomorrow and, and try out for it?" And I said, "Okay." Went down and jammed and got the job. Mm. It wasn't very difficult. Um, I think it must be desperate, really, quite honestly. Uh, and then we, then we went on tour. Uh, we started in Trondheim, which is north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden, and we thought, you know, we could get away with getting at least one gig under our belt without anybody noticing, which we did pretty well. We were just playing a hall, and that was freezing. I remember. And we got magnificently drunk after the first the first night because we we got through it with hardly any mistakes. We did rehearse quite hard um, for us anyway. Uh, <laughs> it was never repeated. I've got to be honest. We never repeated the amount of rehearsal we did to get that first band off the ground. We did the unplugged record, and we never played the whole. It was a, it was a quite a long set, maybe twenty songs. And we rehearsed all the songs individually, and sometimes we'd rehearse a little block, but we never rehearsed the whole show. And, and I've said that to other musicians, they go, what? You never ran it from top to bottom? Yeah. Oh, it was 20 songs, but it was far too long. You know, and Ronnie Wood had a, 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 a pickup truck backed up to the doors into the rehearsal room, and in the back of it, he had a cooler with fitted in the exact width of this Ford Bronco, I think it was, and you lifted up the lid, and there was an entire everything bar you wanted. It was, of course, <laughs> we seemed to want quite a lot of it. <laughs> so we would stop and, uh, anybody thirsty? Yeah, oh, yes, thanks. Yeah, I'll have a Guinness, please, if I may, or maybe you've got a vodka tonic in there somewhere. So the rehearsals were fabulously funny. It was great, and Ronnie was just brilliant as ever. And um, and the 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 the, uh, the record did very well. It uh, did um, four and a half million, I think, right. which is quite a lot in those days. And uh, then it was so successful. Then they said, "Let's go on the road." So off we went for ten months. And that was the last tour I did with Rod because um, I didn't really want to spend my time touring because it, there's, you can't there's nothing else you can do I mean you're on tour that's it mm. a, I mean, you could maybe write a song if you felt inclined but I never liked writing on the road it was, it's a different mindset and of course I had kids and a wife and all that kind of stuff and 
and they would come out and visit. But you know, I, I, I've got it. I now have a, a seventeen-year-old daughter who lives with me. I'm a single dad, and I absolutely love it. And I would not want to go out on the road for extended periods of time. I was I was ten days in America recently, and that's as much as I want to do. You know, this, these times are too precious. You know, she'll be gone. You know, to university in a couple of years, and that'll be that. You know, that should be. You know, be the be the emptiness business. So, um, so any wandering off on that. So touring is now not not really on my menu. Writing songs and playing gigs with my wonderful band, which is called Cregan and Co. Mm. And they're fantastic players, absolutely fantastic players. Mm. So, uh, and we play music from my heritage and new songs. So it's lovely. Mm. That's what I'm doing at the moment. Sorry, it's your turn. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And <laughs> um, we will get to Cregan and Cohen literally the next okay. question on from this. Um, the, obviously, you briefly touched on the the Cat Stevens thing there. Oh, I'm yeah. Watching a video where you were saying that he, he bought you a Strat, didn't he, that you still got That's today? It. That's it there. That's right. One. Yeah. I mean, it. how how does that work? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you go shopping with him and you haven't got any money. That's how it works. <laughs> um, yeah, we. it was the same session that I was talking about when Linda Lewis mm. uh, was, was doing, when I was playing a Linda Lewis session. And um, he's a lovely guy. I mean, I've worked with him a couple of years back, went down to France and made a record with him. Uh, he's he's an absolute sweetheart. And um, we just said, let's go and have a look in the guitar shops. In those in those days, you you wanted to see what was new or what you know what was going on, and so we went on to Sunset Strip and into one of the guitar shops. And I don't think it was a guitar centre. Only the guitar centre existed. Anyway, we pop into this place, and I'm looking for a Strat. Uh, I'd been playing um, Gibsons up to that point, and the Telecaster, and um, I saw that Strat in there, picked it up put it in an amp, absolutely loved it. And I said, um, uh, will you pay for it? Uh, Steve, we used to call him those days. Would you pay for it, please? And I'll give you the money when I get home. Because, uh, or maybe I just left my credit cards in uh, the hotel or something. I don't know. Anyway, he bought it and I gave him the money later. It was $250, I think. And it's now probably worth about 20,000 quid. Okay, he's worth that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nineteen sixty-four. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it's great. It's great guitar. Mm. Um, of course, going to where we are today um, mm. with Cregan and Cone. Um, you obviously have the the new Christmas single out, um, which is mm. the cover of the Christmas classic when a child is born. What mm. made you guys go for for that song and and going for a Christmas single? <laughs> okay, well. I work for this, uh, I'm the, uh, the chairman or some such kind of silly name uh, of, a, of the music part of a charity called Angel Force USA. Mm -hmm. And Angel Force USA is, uh, is run by a friend of mine, Anne Dunsmore. And the idea is we try to raise awareness of the problems of suicide in the US military and in general all over the place. So it's not, it's, she, because she's American, it's, uh, it's, we're starting it there, but we have hopes to, to, to come over into Britain and make it an international awareness. Um, and, uh, uh 
without going into this, first of all, there aren't very many of these charities because it's such a wretched subject. You know, you want to clear a room, you uh, you say, I've come to talk to you about suicide. And it's, you know, everybody's out. Nobody wants to talk about it, and that's the problem. So I, I invented a, a word uh, called suicidence, which is which is self-explanatory, really, is that nobody wants to talk about suicide. Mm. Um, so we, uh, I was just recently in, in America at a symposium where there are lots of speakers who can talk about how there's new methods for help, mental health and all the rest of it. But mainly what we're trying to do is get people to talk to each other about uh, the risk. People that are at the risk of suicide need... Uh, somebody to talk to and the military especially the, the warriors they don't they're not going to talk to you i remember this bloke a vietnam vet because I'm, I'm meeting all these incredible people uh, veterans from all over from even from from uh from the second world war there was one at this symposium and i remember he said to me uh uh he said listen why don't you not just f off right he said we don't want to talk to you he said this is you know you you don't understand us you come over here and you know all that stuff, and he and and, and he he's a, a donor, a big donor to this this six. But this was the part of him that he wanted me to understand. We're warriors, you know. Our idea of communicating with each other is all right. Yeah, all right. Let's go and have pizza. That's their idea of communicating. So the idea that 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 you need to kind of break down some of these barriers. That's the, that's the heart of what. Angel Force USA does. So there's the Angel Force band, right, of which I'm supposedly chairman. It's a great guys in it, you know, really, really wonderful players. Um, uh, it's just too many to mention at the moment, but trust me, there's some hot session guys and brilliant touring guys. Um, so Anne phones me up last year and says, uh, why don't Angel Force band put out a, a Christmas single? And, and you know, see, we try and get a hit and, and raise awareness. The money goes to the charity. I said, okay, I can do that. So got together with my lot over here and said, um, let's sit down and listen to a bunch of Christmas singers who really wanted to tell me, listen and listen and listen. And then on came When the Child is Born, Johnny Mathis. Oh, what a beautiful melody. This is such a pretty song. We could do this. So I said, that there's that talking bit in the middle, isn't there? Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, only Elvis can do talking bits and bits <laughs> All the world's a stage. All the men and women merely players. Remember that? <laughs> One of his tunes. <laughs> I loved it. I don't like talking in records. It annoys me. So I said, we'll get rid of that bit. And so I'll, I'll write a bridge uh, to take his place. And, and ben, Ben's going to sing that. And Sam's going to sing the rest of it because... Um, Yes, it, was, it seemed a better choice for his voice. We've got two great singers, Sam Tanner and Ben Mills. Um, so we do it. We send it over to Anne. And are you familiar with the, the cheese, um, the Monty Python cheese sketch, where he goes into the, the he goes into a cheese shop, keeps asking for cheese, and the bloke keeps saying, no, we haven't got that, right? We haven't got yes. that one. You know, this, yes. it's, a very, it's a very famous sketch. Well, it felt a bit like that. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> you know, he asked in the, the cheese sketch, John Cleese asked for cheddar. He says, we've got any cheddar. He says, he says, no. He says, but it's the most singularly popular cheese in the world. <laughs> Not round these parts, sir. <laughs> so so I, I said this thing to Anne. Anne goes, um, 
okay, uh, yeah, this, this is lovely. This is lovely. Thank you very much. Um, I've never heard of this song. I said, but it's an international hit. Not round these parts, right? It wasn't a hit in America. I could not believe it. So mm-hmm. I sent her the only song I could have found that was absolutely wrong for the job. Right? So it wasn't a cover of anything, as far as she was concerned. It was trying to sell a new song at Christmas, which, uh, how hard is that? So, so it fell on the floor. Right, we put it out, fell on the floor. Um, so this year, I said, look, Anne, it's a shame that we don't do something like that. Why don't I put that out? Instead of it under Angel Force, I'll put it under Krieg and Co. Because we, you know, we've got two people that like Krieg and Co. in England, and uh, both of them will probably download it. Which they did. And, and thank you, Mum, and thank you, my sister. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... So here we are now with this, this track out, and it's doing well. It's doing well. It's number 15 in the Heritage Music Chart as we speak. So the money goes to Angel Force. Uh, we, we played it yesterday at a carol service, uh, which goes on the BBC. Yeah. And it's a love, I think it's a, a, quite a nice first. I'm very pleased with it. And I get to be Hank Marvin at the beginning. That's the, I, I play the melody and try as best, my best to sound like Hank. Uh, hey. Come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really 76, cool. So I get to be Hank. God, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? <laughs> um, you know, you have obviously uh, three ASCAP awards for outstanding songwriting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have, like, when it comes to writing songs, do you have a particular process? Like, is there a, is there a special source? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, gosh, but, yeah, I, I knocked it over a long time ago and, and <laughs> spilled all over the floor. Um, not as much. I'm I'm more diverse now than I was um, a couple of years ago mm. uh, because I wrote a book um, entitled "And on Guitar." Because that's how I'm always introduced on stage. It's always "And on Guitar," Jim Gregan. So um, writing the book was was interesting in I found that I actually enjoyed the process more than I thought it was going to be a terrible chore, and sometimes it was. Mm-hmm. I just didn't feel like doing it. And my co-writer and uh, editor, um, Andrew Merriman, uh, kept poking me with the stick and saying, come on, Jim, you know, you've got to write today. It's a sunny day, I'm out my bones, make me write, get on with it, come on. We got, it. We, we, he, we got a publishing deal um, before we finished it, so so we had a deadline, um, which is a good thing, deadlines are good. So after having written the book and enjoyed all those, uh, the, the searching for an image, uh, in fact, my, uh, you know, like, uh, she, she, she was as as uh, beautifully dressed as a bull in a tutu. Um, those kind of ideas, uh, all these images that are in the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed coming up with. It's great fun. So I saw it as as, um, as puzzles rather than problems. When you've got, a, and you would know, being a writer, the, pu- the puzzles uh, you can you can get stuck. And if you see it as a puzzle rather than a problem, I like puzzles. I don't like problems. I love puzzles. Jigsaw puzzles, you know, those kind of box, the bricks that intertwine and all those kind of things. I, I love those. So that's so. then I decided that lyric writing was going to be about puzzles, not about problems. 
Mm. And because I just kind of turned my head around on that, it, it's been quite successful for me in terms of getting the work done. I'm not saying that I haven't written a hit for a little while now, but that's uh, that's a function sometimes of the business. The, the, I've written some nice songs, I think, but um, I like it's just you've got. To, I have to do it. It's it's what I do. You know, it's 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 the extension of being a musician is is to be a writer. I mean, mm. it is for me anyway. I mean, I guess that maybe Eddie Van Halen could write very quickly, and and so he left him more time for playing the guitar as fabulous as he did. Um, for me, I like to take my time. So maybe that's where my energy goes into into thinking about what I'm going to say. So it's a long-winded way of saying I'm now able to write lyric as well, I think. So, but normally I was a melody writer. I could I can write melody all day long. It's, um, it, I'm so fortunate it doesn't bother me at all to come up with a melody. Mm, just a natural thing. I guess. I just, well, yeah. I'm fearless. I think that's the other thing. I'm fearless. I, uh, uh, a friend of mine, B.A. Robertson, once told me when I was going off, because I was signed as a staff writer to Universal, and, I was, uh, and another time I was signed to Warners, which is quite a nice, um, it's a nice job. Mm-hmm. In 25, 30 years ago, they gave me $300,000 to sit home and write songs. I thought, whoa, this is all right. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So they would send me off to Nashville and New York to write songs with some of their other writers, mm. which involves sitting in a room with a complete stranger and essentially getting naked uh, emotionally. Because if you want to write, you you can't hold anything back. It's got to come from the heart. So you're with a stranger, and they, they obviously they've got the same thing because they're writers too. But it was very odd. I didn't get any hits out of the trip to Nashville. Um, but I should have done, really, but I don't know what happened. I think, I think, to force it, it's, it's kind of forced, you know, just sitting, so you, you arrive at 10 o'clock and you've got till 1 o'clock to write a song, right? and then at 2 o'clock, you go to lunch, and at 2 o'clock, you write another song between 2 and 5, right? So, anyway, uh, that's, that's not a bunch of fun, but it, you know, it's interesting, but it's not fun. Anyway, so I was telling you about B.A. Robson. He said, I said, I'm going to bring a couple of songs with me in my back pocket, you know, which I could whip out and say, why don't we work, you want to work on this? He said, no, don't do that. He said, um, I wouldn't do that at all if I were you. Okay, what would you do? He says, you go to the edge of the cliff and you just jump off. So you've got nothing in your head at all. You get the guitar out and you start. And I went, okay, I can do that. And he, he was right. You you may not get a hit out of this, but you will get something because mm. that's what we do. This is, it's like, uh, you know, getting back up on your bike after you fall off. You, you know, you know how to do this. I know how to write songs. So being fearless is, is part of it. I mean, if I was to give any advice to anybody um, who's thinking because your two listeners are probably, but they're both probably musicians. It's, it's nearly an all musician thing. <laughs> so, so you guys, be fearless. That's the that's the rule. Be fearless. Don't don't, don't um, try to, two things to avoid. Please don't write a lyric full of cliches. That's so boring. And uh, don't don't let anybody tell you um, 
that, that you've got to do it this way and it's got to have that so it's got to have that because it's a bunch of crap I remember uh, talking to so I, I've got this lovely song which Rod Stewart eventually recorded which is um, the best best years of my life I think it is um, the best days of my best days of my life which I wrote with Steve Harley and uh, I played it to my publisher in LA I was living there at the time she said uh Oh, this is a beautiful song. I'm, I was very pleased with it. And Rod, as I said, Rod Stewart recorded it a couple of years back. And um, so she says, I'm going to send this now on an email to the head of something at, uh, in Nashville and see what he says. So she did that. And he got on the phone. He said, OK, thanks for sending the song over. He said, I've had a listen to it. He says, it's a beautiful song, but it hasn't got a chorus. And he's on the speakerphone. And I said... Yeah, it does have a chorus, yeah. She said, oh, um, uh, Michael, uh, uh, while you're there, would you just be kind enough to sing me the chorus of Maggie May? Because I, I can't think of it right now. And he went, yeah, okay. This is no chorus in Maggie May. What about Stevie Wonder's Superstition? Was there, is there a chorus in that? No, there isn't, is there? No. <laughs> <laughs> So there's the lesson. Don't take anybody's point of view, even including mine. Just do, just be fearless. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, a huge mm. hit, fearless record. I mean, that... That, no, that is... Yeah. Is, yeah, it's like, it's so out there. Yeah. Even even now, it's yeah. um, just so different from everything else, really. Yeah, monster hits. Seven minutes long or something, and, and I don't know how <laughs> yeah. many movements there are. It must be five different parts, and uh, you know, at least if you're fearless, you 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 can claim that you're pushing the boundaries and you're trying your best and you're being fully creative. Mm. When you try to, there's an old line that, that one of my friends put in a song: "If you don't follow your dream." you'll end up following someone else's. And I think that's a very important thing to hold in your heart when you're being creative. Mm. No, it's, I, th I think that's great advice. Um, uh, of course, you know, you also have your own podcasts yourself, um, <laughs> Stars, Cars and Guitars, which I've just started watching, actually. Uh, um, obviously, you recently spoke with Leo Sayer and, and Roger Taylor. Mm. And mm. um, I didn't realise until watching that episode with with Roger that that you guys kind of knew each other quite well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're old pals, very old pals. Um, I don't know how long we don't we can't remember how long ago it is, but he, but it's <laughs> sometime around Cockney Rebel time. I knew him before. Um, it's Cockney Rebel and Queen were mm. stable mates at EMI, and we were both having hits. Um, I think one of us did better than the other. I just can't think which one it is. Oh, yes, I know now. Um, <laughs> and, just a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, he, he lived at, he lived the next street over from me in L.A. So we would hang out in bars and have dinners together. He would come to my house for dinner and I'd go to his. Um, that sort of thing. We were you know, mm. properly good friends. We'd go sailing together. Um, I, I'm a, a very... Um, I'm a boaty kind of person, and I really don't care what kind of boat it is. It could be a dinghy or it can be a massive yacht. I don't care. I just love to be on the water. And sometimes dinghies are more fun, you know. Um, uh, he's got a big sailboat, and we went, uh, we went sailing around um, 
Ibiza and Formentera around there a couple of years back, maybe more than that, maybe it's four, four years now. And, uh, and it was lovely, silly holiday, you know, rather, rather too much wine. But great, you know, so yeah, we're mates. We're mm. very good mates. Well, that's really cool. Mm. I, I wouldn't have pieced, uh, y- y- you know, you two kind of crossing paths the whole yeah, queen and yeah, your rebel. You, yeah, you get, you do get to know, um, you get to know, if you stay around long enough, you get to know loads of people. Mm. You know, it's inevitable. You you know, you back in the day when, see, people don't, don't make records the same way anymore. You know, you don't spend months in a studio mm. doing the whole thing and finishing it. Um, but in those days, uh, we would be working at the record plant and they would be in the next room or Stevie Wonder would be in the next room mm. or the, the Knack or, um, oh, I can't remember, loads, loads of people. So they, they're two main the three main rooms there two big tracking rooms and uh and one kind of smaller but still a hefty uh, recording room i mean it's a bit like abbey road i mean abbey road's got four major studios mm-hmm. you know so you could be there with, with all sorts of other people being in, in the building you you'd meet in the in the canteen or you you know in the lounge or whatever in the, or in the jacuzzi as it was in in, <laughs> in the record plant um, yeah, they knew how to. They knew how to entertain the, the guys. Now, uh, a question that I always like to finish on, that I ask every guest that comes okay. on. It's a bit of a hypothetical one. Um, if you could tour with one band from the past and one band from the present, who would they be? Well, hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> um. Blind Faith, I would probably like to, um, I would have liked to have been in Blind Faith, that would have been a great band, great, great players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you talk about the present, would that include something like the Eagles or? or yeah, I mean, you, you could go with anybody that's still kind of Anybody that's still playing, right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, a, I'm quite a big Eagles fan. Um, uh, that's, that music is some for some reason, even though it's it's a tiny bit over tidy for me. Is it could be a little more raw. Still, there's such there's, there's so the writing is so good. I mean, Don Henley's a wonderful writer. Mm. Um, but um, um, uh, Billy Eilish is somebody I'd like to work with. Wow. Uh, I listen to her music quite a lot. Uh, well, she, she, you know, uh, okay, hey, I've got a seventeen-year-old daughter. We yeah. have we have iTunes and we have a Bluetooth connection, so uh, and Spotify rather. So we have when we're out in the car, we're always listening to uh, somebody new, somebody relatively new. Um, and also, uh, yeah, Billy Irish. I like Billy Irish. I think she started a whole new movement of a very soft vocal. Mm. Mostly a very soft vocal and incredibly minimalistic. I think the productions and her voice and her writing, God, her writing's fantastic. I'm a big fan. I love what she does. So probably Billy Irish and uh, and you know the Stones would be fine. I mean, they're still mm. going. They, you know, we only, we don't know for how long. But Blind Faith, I really I like that band. I'd like to be in that band just to play with. Uh, uh, 
Stevie Winwood and, and Ginger Baker uh, mm-hmm. and, and of course Eric. Yeah. That'd be good. That, yeah, that'd be crazy. I mean, it, the Billie Eilish thing's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's one of those where I remember reading somewhere that for the first, I think the first record she did, they, they did it in their bedroom. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's like, yeah. that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's, we, that's what we could do. I mean, I'm talking to you on, now on a, on a, on yeah. a Macintosh, uh, an, an iMac, and... I can make records on this. It's, mm. got, it's maxed out with 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 um, you know all the various things you can put in it. And I work in Pro Tools. I've got a Genelec sp- speaker system. I've got great microphones. Mm. I can record here, and I do. I'm, and I make records here. Apart from the drums, I go in the studio and put the drums on live. But I can do everything else here. It's mm. great. Yeah. That's, that's what she does. The wonders of technology. <laughs> hey, I'm a, I'm good. I'm good at technology. Honestly, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I when computers first came out, a Commodore sixty four was was the <laughs> computer I had, and I bought it because there was a guy came around and the studio and said, Does "Anybody want to buy a computer?" We said, "What's a computer?" Sort of thing, and he said, "Well, it's this." And I bought one, and I uh, I wrote. Um, I was writing a screenplay at the time for for fun, um, and I wrote it on that. Um, yeah, and I've had computers ever since. I've got goodness, how long? So I'm not afraid of technology. I'm I, I'm always sad when when people my age are terrified of things like you know how to work an iphone how to mm. how to drive a tesla how to you know how to work anything on a computer it's it's a shame you know because it's, it's a wonderful way to to be creative i mean my daughter does things on her ipad with a, one of those apple pens you know that you can yeah. draw things it's brilliant i'm fascinated mm. so yeah yeah Billy <laughs> Irish, okay, good, good girl. Oh, that, that, there's some cool choices in there. Um, well, thank you very much for joining me, Jim. And, it's been uh, my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much no, for, for letting me go come and hang in your room. It's cool. And, That's and a great looking room you've got there. I know, I've dressed it all up, oh, especially for Christmas. Oh, bless you. Um, okay. To tie in with the, the, the Christmas single, which people can uh, listen to via the mm-hmm. link in the description below. Mm-hmm. And, um, Obviously, all the profits will go to Angel that, Force USA. Yeah, Angel Force USA. So obviously, yeah, yeah. go and check that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ryan, <laughs> it's been a lovely, lovely afternoon spent with you, and thank oh, you so much for having me. It's on been show. really cool. Thank you very much, Jim. You're most welcome. I, um, I really appreciate it. <laughs>